I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the table of contents, because it's going to be a hard one for you to find if you don't. It's the book of Zechariah. You're you're reminded as we have been preaching through, as Pastor Rob has been preaching through the uh, First Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, that we have today made our way to the book of Zechariah. It's a little bit hard to find because they're all different ayahs. There's Haggai, there's Zephaniah, there's a lot of different ayahs there toward the end. So you can find the book of Zechariah. It's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. One of the things that Zechariah has to say to us is about the problems of the returning exiles. Because you see what has happened is that King Cyrus has allowed the people of Israel to come back from exile. They were at one time in the land of Babylon and they sat by the river Euphrates crying for God to allow them to go back to their land of Jerusalem. Now they are in the land, they are allowed to go back, and yet in spite of that, things are not the way that they should be. All of the prophecies that have been prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of these amazing things that they've been told are going to happen, haven't yet happened. And it looks as if even though they are back in the land, the exile is not over. And they don't quite know what to do. And so the second half of the book of Zechariah tells people that in order for a real return from exile, in order for the exile to truly be over, they need something more, something that they don't have right then. And the end of chapter 12 in the book of Zechariah encapsulates that for us. So we'll begin reading in chapter 12 of Zechariah and in the 10th Verse, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, In the morning, Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Zechariah is saying something to us here. In fact, he has a couple of messages for us. But the primary thing that Zechariah wants to teach us The primary thing that we can learn from this passage of Scripture today is that because God is trustworthy, the true believer must depend upon Him for our provision. We cannot depend upon ourselves. And that was the problem with the exiles, both before and after they had gone into exile. They were depending upon themselves and the idols that they worshipped rather than depending upon God, whom they should have worshipped. 
So I'd like for us to point out, I'd like to point out for you three things that Zechariah is telling us that God provides for us in this passage. Three things that all of us together need. The first is that God provides repentance. You see that in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. One of the things that I've been terribly, terribly uh, sad about in the last year is the number of high-powered or high-profile ministers who have fallen. In fact, my friend Scott McKnight has written this book called A Church Called Tove. And in it, the first part, he talks about two of the ministers in the Chicago land area who were very famous, who were very well known, who wrote lots of books, and yet who fell into sexual promis- promiscuity, and yet who had lusted after money. And he asks in this book, what are we supposed to do about that? Zechariah tells us. He tells us that we are to be a people of repentance. And Dr. McKnight and his daughter tell us what it means to be a church called Tov. Tov in the Hebrew means good. And it's a word that Zechariah uses. How is it that we are to be a church called good? One of the ways is we must repent of the things that God has called us to repent of. For the people to whom Zechariah is writing, it is idolatry. They have again and again and again fallen into idolatry. We should remind ourselves that repentance comes only from God. God here says in the 10th verse, I will pour out on you. Nobody repents because they work it up themselves, because somehow they they get to a spirit of repentance all by themselves. There was a famous minister about 100 years ago called Charles Finney. Charles Finney was an attorney. If he had gone to Knox Seminary, he would have been a lot different, but he didn't go to seminary. And as a result, he had this idea that he, being an attorney, could somehow convict people himself by his speaking and cause them to feel so bad that they would come forward in the church and, and become Christians. And so he trained himself to look straight at people and to call out people by name whom he thought needed repentance. But the problem was that once Charles Finney left, the repentance left with him. And we have to realize that the only way that we can really repent is to know that God has called us to repent. This repentance brings a change in one's values. It it changes who we are and and what we are. One consistent thing that we have seen in the falling of high-profile ministers over the last year is that to almost every one of them, to in fact every one of them, have tried to cover it up, have tried to lie about what they have done. Rather than repenting for the sins that they have committed, they lied and tried to blame the victims. And that is not what God calls us to do. God calls us to repentance. A very famous early church father named St. Augustine. You've heard of him, I'm sure. I was doing a children's sermon once, and I asked all the children, have any of you heard of St. Augustine? N- nobody raised their hand. 
And so I thought, well, that's maybe a pronunciation issue. So I said, have any of you heard of St. Augustine? And one boy raised his hand and said, I've not only heard of it, I've been there. So it's not the place. The place is actually named after a person. And St. Augustine in his younger life was a problem child without question. His mother Monica was a Christian, and yet St. Augustine didn't follow after that. He followed after a a a heretical sect called the Manichaeans, and he followed after them in spite of the prayers of his mother. And she prayed, and she prayed that God would bring him back, that God would bring him repentance. And Augustine talks about one day being in a garden all by himself, and there's a a row of bushes in between him and anyone else he can see, and yet he hears a little child on the other side of the bushes playing a game. He doesn't know exactly what game they were playing, but he remembers hearing them say, tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. So he takes up the Bible, turns to the book of Romans, begins to read and is convicted of his sin, turns to Christ, and his mother's prayers are answered. Yet that didn't happen because Augustine just decided in his own mind that he was going to repent. That happened because God himself called Augustine to repentance. And God God is saying in this passage to Zechariah, he's saying through Zechariah to all of us, that God is pouring, is pouring out His Spirit on us so that we can have a spirit of repentance. Remember that the first preaching of John the Baptist and the first preaching of Jesus both are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That sort of repentance is the sort of thing that we so desperately need. We live in a world that is torn by a variety of different forces. We ourselves have found out in the last year that many of the things we thought would always be there aren't there anymore. We found out because of COVID that many of the places that we thought could never go bankrupt have gone bankrupt. And hopefully we have found out that the only place in which we can take real refuge is in the repentance that is given to us through God. But it's not just repentance that God gives us. There's a second thing that God supplies for us, a second thing that God gives us, and that is God provides not only repentance, but also mourning. You see the word in verse 11, and you see it a number of times here in Zechariah. In fact, it's used more in this short paragraph in Zechariah than it is used in any of the rest of the book. That mourning that Zechariah is talking about is a mourning that is intense over over a serious, serious sin that they have committed. They are not only repentant, but they feel really intense shame for what they have done. You see, they will mourn, the text says, as if it's the death of the firstborn. Or they will mourn as if it's the death of their first child. 
You remember David mourning over the death of his child. It was an intense kind of mourning. The Lord is saying to us here, He's saying to us that we ought to realize whenever we see Christ on the cross, Martin Luther said we should remember that we carry the nails in our pockets. That we are mourning because it was our very sin who nailed him to the cross. We are mourning because it is what God has told us not to do, we have done again and again and again. We are mourning because we have fallen prey to the temptation of the evil one. As you read through the, the Old Testament, time and time and time again, God tells the people of Israel, don't follow after other idols. Don't go after idols. And yet time and time and time again, they go after idols and they do what they shouldn't do. You'll notice that in verse 11, there's this there's enigmatic little statement. On that morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. What does that mean? Well, every year in Israel, there was a day of mourning that remembered good King Josiah. You remember King Josiah. He was a child king. He became king of Israel when he was maybe 8 to 12 years old. It's hard to tell exactly when, but when he was a kid. And as they were sort of doing some restructuring of the temple, underneath a block they found the book of the law. And Josiah took the book of the law and he read it. And as a young man, he said, we as a people are not supposed to be following after these idols. And as the king, he had all of those places of idolatry torn down and broken up. The problem was that after Josiah died, the idols came back, as so often happens. The idols were gone for a little while. The outside idols were torn down, but the idols in people's hearts were still there. The mourning for their own sin and for what they have done didn't really make any difference. There's a third thing that God gives us. Not only does He provide for us repentance, not only does He provide for us mourning, that would be a pretty uh, dull and and sad message, if that's all I had to say to you, go out and mourn. You'd say, I don't feel very good about that. Because there's a third thing that Zechariah says God provides. God provides cleansing. You notice in the second part of verse 10, the scripture says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. That is a a quirky way to say anything. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. It's, it's like what? That is a very scrambled sentence grammatically. And it caused the scribes often to, to write down something else because they figured that this must be a, a copyist error. Because it seems to be that God is saying when they look on me, God... They will mourn over him whom they have pierced. It seems to be God saying that 
there's more than one person in me. We, of course, in the New Testament know that the New Testament teaches us that there is one God in three persons. That's what we call the Trinity. And we know that the person who's pierced is the Lord Jesus Christ. This cleansing was costly. It didn't just happen. It, somebody had to pay for that sin. It was incredibly costly for God Himself in the form of Jesus Christ to come here, become a human being, and die on the cross, which was at that point in history probably the most horrific way to die. And yet that's what God did. He sent His Son down and He provided for us a cleansing, a cleansing because of He, because of the fact that He was pierced. We should have been pierced. The nails that we carry in our pocket, as Luther said, should have been for us. It's as if all of the things that we have done wrong in our life are piled up in a giant pile. And it's as if all of those things cost money. We end up, at the end of the day, because of the things that we have done wrong, owing God a whole lot of money. When we said the Lord's Prayer together, remember we said, forgive us our debts. Every time that we sin, we are indebted more and more and more to God. And yet one day, God sent His Son, and He paid those debts for us. The debts that we could have never paid, He paid for us. And that's an amazing thing for us to realize that Zechariah is pointing forward to the cross. He is reminding us that we, of all people, are not deserving of the grace of God, but He gives it to us anyway because He is such a wonderful, incredible God of grace. There's a person in, in church history who is a, a hero of mine. His name is William Cooper. You may have heard of him. Uh, he was a poet as well. You may have read some of his poetry. And William Cooper is a hero of mine, first of all, because we share the same birthday, not the same year, as you can see. It, it, he was born in years before me. But we share the same day of our birth. And the second reason that I'm William Cooper is a hero of mine is because he's a little odd. Uh, maybe a lot odd, actually. He had a variety of problems and never quite felt comfortable uh, around the people that, that he was with. His parents wanted desperately for him to be a lawyer. He went, and on the day that he was supposed to take what we would call the bar, he ran and hid and tried to commit suicide, but he failed. So then they had him move out to a place in the country outside of London. And there was a small church there. A small church there pastored by a man named John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader before he had come to Christ. And John Newton took William Cooper under his wing and tried to do all that he could to try to provide for him. 
And he said to Cooper, since you want to be a poet, how about if we write some hymns together, you and I, and, and we'll put them in a hymn book for our church, only church. And even today, you can find the only hymn book. And so John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. William Cooper wrote lots and lots of other hymns, but not before he had tried two other times to commit suicide. Not before he came somehow in his mind to think that he could never be cleansed by God. That what he had done was so terrible that God could never forgive him. He thought that God's grace was sufficient for anyone else in the world that would turn to him except for himself. And all through his life, as much as John Newton tried to persuade him that he really was a Christian, all through his life, he went on and on saying, no, I am the one person who can never go to heaven. He tried to commit suicide once by having his carriage drive off of a cliff. And as the carriage was going toward the cliff, he fell asleep. And the horse turned around and brought him back home. And he wrote that hymn, you may have heard of it, it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He plants his uh, footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. But my favorite hymn of William Cooper is one that we will sing together in just a minute. It's that hymn called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And Cooper based it on the first verse of the 13th chapter of Zechariah. This is an, an unfortunate chapter break here, because you see, in the first verse of chapter 13, Zechariah says, on that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so Cooper wrote about that fountain filled with blood. Yet he didn't think it was enough for him. And so we think that Cooper was a kind of a special person. A person who when he died, he went to sleep in the dark. But he woke up in the light. Seeing the grace of God was enough even for him even though he didn't realize it and couldn't realize it because of his own problems, the grace of God was enough for him. And it was because of that fountain filled with blood from that person who had been pierced. Zechariah, hundreds of years before the life and death of Jesus Christ, tells us about that one who was pierced and about that fountain that will cleanse us all. And so today I hope that you will listen to what Zechariah has to say to us, that you will realize that God is our only provider, that if we depend upon anyone or anything else in the world, we will ultimately be disappointed. But if we depend only on God, then we will ultimately have our sins cleansed in that fountain filled with blood.